So what we've been doing as a church, we, we've been talking about generations, how we've been uniquely set up as a church and as a world. And if you look around this room today, every generation that's alive on this planet is in this room. In fact, we were led in worship today by four different generations. We had boomers up here, Gen Xers up here, millennials up here, and Gen Z up here leading us in worship this morning. And as a church, as a people, as the people that God is calling to himself, we're called to be a multi-generational church. There's a part of who God is that I cannot reflect, a part of his glory that I cannot reflect without you in my life that I need to have multi-generational people around me. In fact, studies have shown that when they study Gen Z, when they go off to college and maintain their faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for them, one of the five factors, number two, when it comes to the five factors of how they've been able to keep their faith even through college is that they've had a multi-generational relationship. Somebody in their life has been encouraging them, loving on them while they've been doing life. And so that's what we all need. And so what we've been doing as a church is recognizing the generations among us, how unique that is, and yet at the same time, taking some time to explore what it might be that they struggle with, areas that they may have been blessed, how unique they are, and how we can love and support and walk alongside them. Last week, we talked about Generation Alpha and Generation Z. I believe that Generation Alpha will be the generation that will usher in the kingdom of, the, of, of God. I believe that, that God's going to use Generation Alpha in an amazing, powerful way. They will be the largest generation in the history of the world. They will have experienced more than any other generation has experienced. And I believe God is going to use them in a powerful way. And today we're going to be talking about two generations. I'm going to, just like Generation Z and Generation Alpha last week, we're going to be talking about two generations today. And I want to give you some scripture from where this comes from, some big piece of scripture this morning. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be spending the meat of this message in John chapter 8, but we're going to be starting in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your houses and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord." who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God who, sh who you shall fear. fear. Fear him, you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after the other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Good times. I feel like when something ends with destroy, you're, it's a pretty big deal, right? I mean, do this 
or you dead. And so this is what God is talking about, the role of generations. In our society today, this is counterintuitive. We call other generations names. We talk about them like they're lazy and entitled. We talk about last week, how you can look at how every previous generation called the next generation lazy and entitled. And that's not what we're called to do. We need to recognize that we are standing in the middle of somebody else's blessing. We did not dig this well. I did not build that house. It's filled with things that the previous generation has built for us. And yet at the same time, we need to be fueling the generation that comes behind us, loving them, supporting them, treating them as if they are a gift from God. That is what we are called to do. And that's why we do what we do. So last week, I'm just going to cover this one more time. Our God is a generational God. We explored that. God, over and over in the Old Testament, introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of three generations. He's talking about generational change. And he's reminding us in this passage that we just read that it's our job to pass these things off to the next generation with love and grace and support. And not only that, the triune God is God the Father, God the Son. He is a generational God and God the Spirit. And again, I can't reflect who God is without you. And number two, God is creating a generational people. He is calling a generational people to himself. So as a generational people, we need to know each other. We need to know what each generation is going through because you can't say that you love somebody if you don't know them. And so this is the way this breaks down as far as our generations look. I don't know who comes up with this, but it's generally 25 years makes a generation. So you've got... The greatest generation, which was born from 1901 to 1927, you've got the silent generation, also known as like the GI generation, because they went through so many wars, 1928 to 1945, baby boomers up in this space from 1946 to 1964, Gen X from 1965 to 1980, and then you got millennials from 1981 to 1995, Gen Z from 1996 to 2009, and Generation Alpha from 2010 to 2025. And today, we're going to be talking about Gen X and millennials. And I need to apologize, and I'll do this every week. I know that there are a lot of Gen X's and millennials in this room, and it's going to feel as though I'm talking about you and not to you, and that is rude. So I want to apologize for that. Also, you're going to be hearing a lot of general statistics about your generation that might not be true about you. And I'm not saying these things to label you or put you in a box We all need to recognize that there are exceptions to all the things that I will say about these generations, and you might be a part of that exception. That being said, Gen Xers today are age 43 to 58. If you're age 43 to 58, you're part of the Gen Xers, and there are 65 million of you. And you might feel like that is a lot, but you are sandwiched right between two behemoths of generations. So there's 65 million Gen X in the middle, and ahead of them you have 77 million boomers, and after them you've got 93 million millennials. So you've got Gen Xers kind of stuck right there in between, and they've been kind of forgotten about, and everything that they grew up with because of how fast things changed technology-wise instantly became nostalgic. Like something they played with when they were five years old, by the time they were 18, it was an antique. It just moved so fast. 
I asked this the first service the wrong way. I said, how many of you remember the original Nintendo Entertainment System? And everybody raised their hand. How about this? How many of you got the original Nintendo Entertainment System for Christmas? How many? Okay, a lot of you. And then it quickly moved. You guys remember Duck Hunt, how fun that stuff was? I don't know if you remember that generational movie. It was The Wizard. You guys remember The Wizard? And the Nintendo Glove came out. And, and everybody was like, I gotta, I gotta have that Nintendo Glove. I don't know. I just feel like I'm just talking to myself. You're all staring at me blankly. But that was amazing. It was, it was the thing. How about Windows 95? How many of you remember Windows 95? Minesweeper, that was the jam, Solitaire. And when you beat Solitaire, the, the cards would like fall out. It was like the best thing in the world. I, I just, I love that. How about this sound? We're just gonna play a sound for you. Do you remember that? Like there's, there's like five generations in this room who've never heard that sound before. It's like, you remember being on the phone, like you'd go pick it up to call a friend and that's what you heard on the other line. You couldn't be on the internet the same time your mom was talking to like one of her friends on the phone. Some of you will never know what it's like to get an America Online CD in your mailbox. Like every two seconds. I mean, they were everywhere. And so we've got those kinds of things going on. Uh, What about the be kind, please rewind? Nobody knows what that means anymore. But that was like, that was here one day. And then it went to LaserDisc for like five minutes. And then it went to DVDs, like really, really, really fast. There's all these different things that have become, what about, what about when Malika and I first started dating, we had pagers. Guys remember pagers? Uh, and so we had beeper codes. We would text each other like one, four, three. It was like the way you got a hold of somebody so they would find a landline to call you. And then like two years after we started dating, everyone had this cell phone. Remember the Nokia cell phone? Everyone had that cell phone. Do you remember playing snake on that thing? And then like when text messages became a thing, some of you will never remember this, but you used to have to pay for phone minutes and they used to have to pay for texts. And when you text, it was alphanumeric, which meant you didn't have a keyboard. You'd have to hit like the number two, seven times to get to like back around to A, but no, it needs to be a lowercase A. It took like seven years to text, hey, what's up? And like, it took so long. And then of course we played snake on it all day. And then uh, we kind of stole my thunder there, but the, you remember the, the catalogs of CDs? I found Malika's in the garage the other day. These things used to weigh 50 pounds and, you, and they were worth money at one time and now they are worth nothing. We've got like so much stuff in our lives. Did I miss one? Any of them? I think that's all of them. Yeah, so it's all super nostalgic. It all went super really fast for Gen Xers and, and that's just what happened to us. And what's happened is because you've got the the. the so big generations on either side of us, we've become a little bit forgotten about. Gen Xers have become a little bit for, forgotten about. And the way that I'll illustrate it this way is, I'm going to ask you a question. Who was kind of the inventor and a, a runner, for lack of a better term, founder and CEO of Apple Computer? Steve Jobs. Okay, you guys are really quick on that one. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is a boomer, Right? Who was the founder uh, or maybe stealer, but now CEO of Facebook? Mark Zuckerberg. Okay, great. Mark Zuckerberg is a millennial. Who was the founder and creator of Google? 
Nobody knows. Last service, somebody was like, Google founded Google. That's not how it works. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was Larry Page and Sergey Brin who are both Gen Xers. And you have no idea who they are because Gen Xers are quietly running and saving and creating and changing the world. They've approached life as Gen Xers as kind of middle children. And as a middle child of three boys myself, I can relate You've got the boomers over here calling the millennials snowflakes and you've got the millennials over here going, okay, boomer. And it's just, they're fighting in between. You're just like stuck. You've got the boomers over here or the millennials over here saying that the boomers are just gas guzzling planet wreckers. And then you've got the boomers over here saying that the millennials are just avocado toast eating freeloaders. And it's just, and, and meanwhile, again, Gen Xers are just like stuck. And they say, experts say, according to Pew Research, that Gen Xers make up half of the leadership in the entire world. They're the ones that are presidents. They're the ones that are in government leadership. They're the ones that are managing that restaurant. You've got boomers over here who have all the pension plans that they're living off of. And you've got the millennials over here with all the passion. And you've got the Gen Xers quietly over here honestly, with all the power, honestly, the ones making the decisions that are keeping the world alive. And again, because the Gen Xers are caught in the middle of these two siblings that are hogging all the attention, they are somewhat detached. They become skeptical. They become quiet like most middle children, and they've become more concerned with the improvement of the world around them and what affects the people they know than what's affecting the entire world. And their, their mantra of their generation was be excellent to each other and party on, dudes. That's basically how they did life. And each generation is defined by the generation that preceded them. And so you've got the boomers who are very macro. They see the entire world. When I talk to a boomer, inevitably our conversation will turn into something what's happening around the world, what's happening in Israel, what's happening over here in Ukraine. It is like all these world events they know about and they've been following. You talk to a Gen Xer, they're very micro, if only as a way to kind of rebel against boomers. They just want to focus on what's happening here. And they're not necessarily concerned with all the things that boomers have been concerned about and even millennials have been concerned about. You know, you've got a very boomer band, the Beatles. The Beatles had a resurgence because millennial hipsters got into them. They're like, the Beatles, they're so amazing. Why is Paul McCartney barefoot on the cover of Abbey Road? And Gen Xers are like, who cares? Let's move on. And that's what Gen Xers are all about. Yet at the same time, they've been known as a lost generation because they were the first generation of latchkey kids. Because the boomers were able to, to survive and live off of one income. And then slowly, women started going back to work. They started earning higher salaries and the cost to live started to go up. And so uh, Gen Xers were be the first ones being raised in households where both parents work. They would get dropped off by the bus at 3 p.m. at 10 years old, have a key to their house, get in the house, and just do life until their parents got home from work at 5.30 p.m. And that's why they were called the latchkey kids. But as latchkey kids, their generation was exposed to tons of daycare and divorce. It's pretty much what has defined them. They were known as the lowest voting participation of any generation. The Gen Xers were quoted by Newsweek as the generation that dropped out without ever turning on the news. 
They have very high levels of skepticism. And according to this expert about generations, his name is William Morrow, he cited that childhood divorce of many Gen Xers as one of the most decisive experiences influencing how Gen Xers shape their own families. When a Gen Xer began to start a family, they did it with a way more caution than their parents did. They waited later in life to have kids. And when they did have kids, they were way more careful with their children. And that produced the millennials. So then we got the millennials. They were born from 1981 to 1995. That's anyone that's 28 to 42 years old. And again, there are 92 million millennials. Millennials were faced with less employment and smaller incomes than the previous two generations. They were graduating college with mountains of student loan debt, trying to get into the workforce in 2008. And 2008 is when everything collapsed. Jobs were at an all-time low. Salaries were at an all-time low. Unemployment was at an all-time high. And once they did make money, they realized that a lot of their money was, was going to pay taxes for government programs that they were being told was going to be extinct by the time they retired. There was a whole lot of talk about Social Security being done away with, yet it's taking a lot of their paycheck. This generation, the millennials had more student loan debt than any generation ever. Generation Z has been a little bit more careful about these things, but the millennials, I mean, it got insane the amount of student loan debt that they have. But they are incredibly sophisticated. They're incredibly tech savvy. They're immune to most traditional marketing techniques because they were exposed to it at a young age. They've kind of been there, done that. They don't need it in their lives. And millennials are much more ethnically and racially diverse than the generations that came before them. And that seems to be growing in the generations that are coming after them. They're way less brand loyal than any other generation. I don't know if you remember, but there was a time where you wore a shirt that said Abercrombie and Fitch really big on it. And that was like the thing that you would wear. The next thing you know, everybody's wearing a t-shirt with nothing on it. Nobody cares. In fact, they'll spend $400 on a blank t-shirt that Kanye West made. It'll come pre-stretched out for you if that's what you want. And that's what they'll spend. And because of the speed of the internet, we didn't have that speed. Somebody was telling me they used to do dial up and they would go to a website and the website would be loading and it would almost be halfway there. And then their mom would pick up the phone and they'd be like, Ma! And now millennials, it was like lightning speed internet and fashion was spread so fast and changed so fast. Bell bottoms, tight jeans, these things that all cycled through in like one season. You had man buns and then you had tight haircuts and then now they're back to like perms. It's like, what is happening? It's just going all over the place. And so you've got all this stuff happening and there, there were again... Uh, Gen Z, of course, is more money apt than they are, but millennials, they were involved in family purchases at a young age, again, because it was much more intentional. They were involved in the cost of the groceries to how much the new family car costs. So they understood finance a little bit, but one in nine millennials had a credit card that was co-signed by a parent. And if you're a millennial, you're smart. You're not easily fooled. And you don't like to feel bamboozled when somebody tries to get something out of you. And so how am I going to take these two generations that seem so different, Gen X and the millennials, and somehow come up with a topic 
that kind of fits for both of them and, and, and then and at the same time open our eyes to a way that we can bless and encourage and strengthen and be there for these generations. So what is the one thing that they have in common? And it's a sad thing to be honest with you. It, it's addiction. The one thing that millennials and Gen X have in common is how much their lives have been torn apart by addiction and substance abuse. The, the opioid crisis that we had and still is ongoing has been likened by many to the AIDS epidemic, yet the AIDS epidemic at its height in 1995 had killed 51,000 people. And the opioid epidemic at its kind of its height in 2015 had killed 52,000 people. So more people than even AIDS. And according to the Department of Health and Human Services, every day in 2015, 3,900 people were beginning an addiction to opioids. Every single day, 4,000 people were beginning an addiction to opioids. And while that number appears to be slowing down, the death toll continues to rise from 1999 because of fentanyl. Fentanyl has come around, and when, when you used to just do a little bit, now it's just it's killing everybody. And it's a huge problem for us. 40 to 49-year-olds from Generation X had the highest rate of drug misuse deaths from Generation X. And yet for the past 10 years, the millennial generation's substance abuse rates have skyrocketed. According to the Trust for America's Health and Well-Being, from 2006 to 2015, drug-related deaths climbed 108% in less than 10 years, while fatal alcohol poisoning surged to 69%. Do you know what generation had the most alcohol deaths and addiction to alcohol was actually the boomers? And so that gets passed on. Experts have flat out said that millennials are predisposed to addiction. I mean, that, those are strong words. That just from the year you were born, you are predisposed for substance abuse. In 2015, for the first time in American history, the number of overdose deaths outnumbered the number of gun homicides. And according, just to bring it home for us, to Macon County, to where you're standing and sitting today, according to the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, in 2016, for Macon County's population of 34,000 residents, 38,000 prescriptions were written in Macon County. And those prescriptions amount to 81.2 pills per person for a total of 2.7 million opioid pills were prescribed in 2016 in Macon County, making Macon County the highest per capita place that pills were prescribed in all of North Carolina. So this is a huge issue for us. So what we need to do about it, what we need to do about it as a church, if we say we love these generations and this might be something that they're going through, now, we, we haven't been a church that just sees an issue and just says, wow, that's a problem, let's pray about it. We do stuff about it. Obviously, we have Celebrate Recovery on Monday nights, tomorrow night at 6 p.m. You can come at 5.15 if you would like dinner. They need more people involved in recovery. If that's you, if you want to be a part of that, if you want to recover from something, you don't just recover from pornography. You don't just recover from anger. You don't just recover from addiction. You can actually recover from being in a dysfunctional family. 
You know how many people I've talked about said that they are the way they are because they come from a dysfunctional family? You don't have to be that way. You can recover from it. I've recovered from codependency in a 12-step program. It's a 12-step program. It's Christian-based. Each step has a verse that's attached to it, a biblical principle that's attached to it, and our higher power is Jesus Christ. And, we, and the, the, the prison is bringing people over. The hospital is sending people our way. It is a great way to get involved in this. But what you need to recognize and understand, and one of the things I want to kind of open your eyes to, one of the things I want you to see the way that God sees this, is that everything you know about addiction is probably wrong. In the early 19th century is when they kind of formulated their idea about how addiction worked. And it was a very simple thing. It was a very simple, uh, what do you call it when somebody studies something? Guys, I'm blanking out. It was a very simple uh, test. Okay, we'll just call it a test. And you could actually do this test at home if you want to. If you have a rat and some heroin, you could do it at home. And so what they did was... They got this cage and they put a rat in it alone with one water bottle that had nothing in it and the other bottle, water bottle was laced with heroin. And they found that that rat, when it tasted the heroin water, it would continue to go back to the heroin water habitually and to the point of death, it would overdose. And so they were like, okay, so the problem is heroin. We need to get heroin off the streets. And that is what they believed about addiction for a very long time until the mid-1900s or the 1970s. There was a man named Bruce Alexander, who's a professor in psychology in Vancouver, noticed something. He noticed that the cage that they were putting the rat in was empty and they had no choice but these two water bottles. So he decided to create something he called Rat Park. It was a much bigger cage. It had colorful balls for the rats to play with. It had tunnels that they could run around in, other toys. And most importantly, it had other rats. And the two water sources were the same water sources from the first experiment. One was just water. The other was water laced with heroin. When the rats would taste the heroin water, they actually preferred the other water. And none of them returned to the heroin water on a habitual, compulsive basis. And none of them overdosed. So you went from 100% overdose when the rat was alone in the cage with nothing else and 0% overdose in Rat Park. It changed everything they believed about addiction. And so, it, it, so the, according to the archives of general psychiatry, they did a, a very detailed study to see if this was true because around the same time in the 1970s, there was a war going on in Vietnam. And when they would go to Vietnam, 20% of Vietnam soldiers in Vietnam would do heroin. And so they were wondering, is this the cage or is this heroin? And so when those 20% of soldiers came back to the United States, guess what? A lot of them got off heroin because they were able to bond. They were able to make connections. They were put back into Rat Park, so to speak. So looking at this, there was another professor called Peter Cohen in the Netherlands said maybe we should get away from calling it addiction at all. So instead of calling it addiction, maybe we should actually call it bonding. Because what people are doing is they're bonding to a pill. They're bonding to pornography. They're bonding to gambling. They are bonding to something that makes them feel good because they're unable to bond. They realize that human beings have a natural and an innate need to bond, to connect. 
And when they're happy and healthy, they make bonds, they make friends. But when they're unable to make bonds because they feel broken, because they feel that they've been beaten down by life, they're traumatized or isolated, you will bond with something that will give you some kind of sense of relief. Now again, that might be all those things. It could be cocaine, it could be cannabis, but you will bond and connect with something because that's our nature. That's what we want as human beings. And this gets crazy dangerous in light of our talk with Generation Alpha and Generation Z last week. Because what do we learn about that generation? They are not having face-to-face relationships. It is not happening. They are only connecting through their phones. And it says this in Hebrews 10, 24. This is what it's called to us. This is what we're doing here. This is why what we're doing here is so important. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, in Galatians, Galatians 6, 2, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Solomon writes in Proverbs 18, 1, he says, a man having separated himself seeks his own desire and rages against all sound reason, all sound wisdom. When you think about the world that we're in today, do people connect at the mall? Because malls are closing. Everybody is there shopping online. Do, do people connect? I mean, where do they connect? Do they connect when they go rent a video at Blockbuster? No, I mean, that's closed. Nobody goes to Blockbuster anymore. Do they, do they connect when they shop for clothes? No, because we, again, we do all of our shopping online. Where is the one place in our world today that you can connect with people? That you can show up and somebody will open a door for you, look you face in the face and smile and say, I'm glad you're here. That somebody can hand you a hot cup of coffee. Where is the one place that you can safely place your kids so you could just get fed and be around people? Where does that happen? Because I believe that the only place that that is happening today is the church that we need to love people, that we need to have some open doors. And as a church, we want to give you bonds and connections that you want to be present for. We want to introduce you to a God that loves you, a people who have been loved by his radical grace and changed by him and want you to be a part of their family. We want to introduce you to healthy relationships. And that is in stark contrast to how historically our world has handled this situation. We started a war on drugs which ended up being a war on the addicted. And there was a prison, a women's prison in Arizona where women were, were sent to that prison because of drug-related offenses. Now, whether that was having drugs on their person when they were pulled over, whether that was driving under the influence of drugs, but it was a drug-related offense. And in this prison, they were made to wear pink T-shirts that say, I am a drug addict, and do clean up the, the roadsides, dig ditches, and the public would jeer at them and yell at them. And when these women would get out of prison because of, they were in there because of their addictions, when they would get out of prison, they could never get a job in an ethical society again because they had a prison record. So they only had to work you know, under the table and do some questionable things and they ended up going to prison again. 
And that's an extreme example, but that's almost how this, how we treat addicts everywhere in our world to some degree. We punish them, we shame them, we give them criminal records, and we put barriers in front of them so that they cannot make a healthy connection with anybody. Dr. Gabor Mate in Canada said, if you wanted to design a system that kept people addicted, that's the system that you would design. So recognizing that, that people cannot connect, millennials, Gen Xers, the addicted, the lonely, when you go through a crisis in your life, this is why I'm worried for Gen Z, it will not be your Snapchat followers. It will not be your social media followers that will show up and sit next to you, that will drive you to a sinner. It will be your flesh and blood relationships that show up for you. And it seems as though the only place where those relationships are still happening is the church. But again, the number of close friends the average American has has been steadily declining since the 1950s. And the one thing that's been growing since the 1950s is the square space of our homes. We have traded friends for floor plans. We've got big, beautiful houses and seemingly don't have anybody over. It's kind of this weird society that we've been building for ourselves. Something has gone wrong with us, not just with individuals, but as a group. And we've created a society where for a lot of us, life looks more like that isolated cage. You have no idea how many people say that they're lonely. And the higher amount of time that we spend engaged on social media, the more lonely we feel. We've become increasingly isolated and our lives look a whole lot like that single rat in a cage and a whole lot less like the rat park. We need to be engaged. And hopefully, if you've been part of Discover for a while, I'm hoping you can kind of get a sense of your role in this solution. Because if you're a millennial, if you're a Gen Xer, if you're addicted to a a substance, if you're addicted to stuff, if you're addicted to gambling, if you're addicted to pornography, if you feel alone, if you feel like you need bonds and connection, I want to believe that Discover Church is the place for you. They've come to the place where they say that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. If somebody wants to get out of it, it's not that they need to be sober. It's that they have to be connected to something else. And if you're looking for a place to connect, you belong here. And what you need to hear your pastor say, what you need to know that the people of this church say, is no matter who you are, no matter what you've come from, if you're currently addicted, if you haven't taken a shower for a week, if you don't think that you're wearing the right clothes, no matter what, if you've got a tracker on your ankle, we are so glad that you are with us this morning. We want you to be able to connect here. And we recognize that historically, if you find yourself in those positions, the last place you want to go is the church. I'm begging you, I'm imploring you as your pastor, can we become the first place? Somebody wants to come to experience grace and connection. When we have door greeters, door holders, ushers, their job is not to bounce people. Their job is to love on people. I have to share some stories that I didn't share the first service, but they just came to me now. We have a security team that has cameras in the lobby And they watch people as they come in. And so we were having this security team training about what we do. And there was this woman that came in one week, a couple months ago. She had a duffel bag on her shoulder. So our thing was, 
We don't want a security team that's going to strong arm people out of this place. Be like, what's in the bag? What's in the bag? And like tackle her. And so what they decided to do was go to a sweet woman in our church that means a lot to me. And they said to her, hey, would, would you go and talk with this lady? We just need to know what's in, what's in the bag and what's going on. And, and so this lady goes to her and sits next to her in the back row and says, hey, are, are you okay? And the lady says, no, I'm not. I'm really not okay. Will you help me? And so she takes her to the bathroom and she begins to wash her. And she get, begins to put makeup on her. And she realizes that this woman isn't alone. And she asks her, because she can tell, she says, I need to ask you, are you on something right now? And Letty says, yes, and I need help. And she was able to love her. She was able to introduce her to the right people, the right circle of friends. She was able to tell her where she could find dinner, where she could find a shower, where she could find grace, where she could find love, where she could find hope. And I want to be that kind of church. But sadly, I gotta be honest with you, I'm not trying to make ourselves seem great. I don't know if we just had a good Sunday, but that same scenario does not play out that way in a lot of churches. And maybe it wouldn't have played out that way in a different church or on a different Sunday for us. Maybe if she wasn't there, maybe the wrong security guy was like, I need to get her out of here. But we need to be that kind of church where people who come in like that don't just feel like they're welcomed, but feel like they're wanted. We need to be the kind of church that is ready and prepared to love on people who look different than we look because they are so filled with shame. And the one place that that shame seems to be coming from is the church. It's the last place they want to go. We need to remove that because we need to understand for ourselves that we have received radical grace. We, as an institution called the church, should run the gambit on people who are desiring to connect out of brokenness and addiction to come and find that connection because we had nothing to offer our God and King except for dirty rags. I had a wretched heart. Uh, my heart was blackened. And he came when I didn't, I, I didn't deserve it while I was still a sinner. And he said, I love you. And he blessed me. He changed me from the inside out. And he just leave me in the graveyard. He brought me to the palace. He put a ring on my finger that says, son. He clothed me in his robes of righteousness that I did not earn. That's what I've gotten from all the stuff that I've did. When somebody else walks in for some reason, we feel like we need to be the gatekeepers. And yet at the same time, we need to have a rational love, a rational grace. Because the truth is there is no freedom without grace. It just doesn't exist. We want people to be set free. We want them to be set free from the power of sin. We want them to be set free from addiction. But if we're not bringing them grace to the table, it will not happen. It says this in John 8. It's a very popular passage. John 8, 2 says, Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up, 
and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. It's a very interesting story because, you know, the act of adultery requires two people and only one was brought before him. It's a very interesting story because you can imagine the terror in her as a door is beaten down and she's ripped out of bed, brought to the temple, probably not even given a chance to dress herself, paraded before men, and the charge against her is death. Death by stoning, which I can't think of a terrible, more terrible way to die. And Jesus knows this woman. He's known her her whole life, knitted together in her mother's womb, knows how many hairs are on her head, put every tear that she has ever cried in a bottle and kept it because he loves her. This is his daughter. And Jesus is left alone with her. And no doubt she's feeling humiliated. She's feeling ashamed. She's probably heard about Jesus in this incredibly awkward moment. He says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And you can imagine this guilt. You can imagine this shame. This is the worst day of her life. Her very dark secret has been revealed in such a public way, but the very worst day of her life has become the very best day of her life because in her brokenness, she meets Jesus. And, and, and what, what you need to hear from this church is that God's grace is greater than your secret. Many of us have this secret that we've been keeping hidden that wants to stay hidden. And I'm not saying we need to stand up here and confess our deepest, darkest secret to everybody in this room. But I'm saying you won't experience grace until it's on the table. We've created environments, small groups, 12-step studies, discipleship groups, men's breakfast. The boomers met on Friday and their Friday gathering. We've created places that you can connect, develop relationships, and in the safety of that relationship, be able to have a discussion. And yes, there might be consequences to that dark secret that you bring out, but our goal is restoration. We want to see you restored to the beauty, to the power, to the purpose that God has called you to. And we need to allow people to bring their secrets up so that they can experience this kind of life change. God's grace is greater than your shame. Jesus says, I don't condemn you either and gives her a second chance. And when we fully connect with Jesus, fully connect with the family of God, when we fully repent, when we fully confess our sins and begin to take that journey together, there is grace involved. And we discover this beautiful thing, that shame that has kept you sick, that shame that has put you in a a rat's cage, that it's just you, gets removed and you get to be filled with the grace of God, belong to a family that love you. And belong to a family that wants to see you succeed and give you an opportunity to succeed. That's the kind of place that we want to be. Millennials, Gen Xers, those who are addicted, you belong here. We accept you as you are, but we lovingly expect that Jesus is going to change you. I want to be a place that's filled with broken people who are made alive in Jesus Christ. 
I want to be a place where broken people feel wanted and feel as though that they belong. That's the place that we want to be. And we're not necessarily there yet. There's lots of work we can do. But we need to talk about this often enough that it becomes in our DNA that I want you here. 